This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The American alligator is the largest reptile in North America. In Mississippi, they're most prevalent in the southern two-thirds of the state, but can be found in many parts of Mississippi. Today, we're going to talk to the alligator program coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, Ricky Flint, about what to do if you spot a gator and how to participate in the upcoming alligator hunting season. Dr. Major's here for pet questions, and Libby always likes to hear about your latest encounters with nature. Join our conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. I always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Hope you're doing well this morning. Yes, doing pretty good. And Dr. Major, I think we have you on the telephone. Good morning. Good morning. It's a good day. <laughs> Glad it's a little bit cooler than last day. Yes, it's. Uh, it was, uh, I think, especially Tuesday. I thought the humidity was especially Hi, I was out playing tennis, and it was quite, quite uh, steamy out there. Yesterday didn't seem to be as bad, but still uh, still very hot. And wondering what uh, Mississippi has in store this coming weekend with that tropical disturbance that's kind of just been brewing in the uh, down there in Mexico. So uh, I picked the wrong weekend to go visit my brother in Florida, but hey, what the heck. <laughs> the beach, even with the rain, can sometimes be a fun getaway. So, Dr. Major, we're going to be talking about alligators today. Have you ever had an alligator encounter? Absolutely. As a as a as a child, I guess, and on through high school, I had a pet alligator. I called it a pet anyway. <laughs> so it was probably illegal at that time. I don't know if it was or not, but oh, anyway, yeah. he was legal. Uh, he he was he was a good alligator. His name was Jack. Uh, uh, named after one of the guys that had the alligator farm down in Florida. Uh, anyway, uh, it was one of those things where they used to sell alligators. Okay, this was down at uh, uh, Gulfport or somewhere. Anyway, there was a reptile park, and I begged my grandmother for the alligator, and he was about a foot long. And Anyway, so I, I had a special pen built for him, and he uh, he thrived and did quite well. Uh at some point, though, there came a monsoon, and he got out of his pen, and I never saw him again. But he was probably about—he was between three, three and a half feet long at that wow. time. So he, he was—he was moving on. But anyway, yes. Uh, other than that, I, I don't treat alligators. So <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't ever brought you one from the museum. I was sitting here trying to remember, but you would probably remember more than I would. <laughs> right. Right. <clears throat> that you know, Doctor Major. That's why we have you on the show. You're a great vet, but boy, you have got some really fascinating stories. And that uh, pet pet alligator just adds to the list. So we do. Uh, he, he was, yeah. He 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 survived. I, I would have fish, and but he his favorite was hamburger meat, raw hamburger meat. <laughs> I didn't put it, but, but he would catch literally 
you could drop balls of hamburger meat in his mouth. But anyway, he did he did quite well. He he was good, and it always surprised me how well he did during, you know, when there was ice on the on his covering up the pool. But he he did fine. He survived. All right. Uh, so, Libby, what are you seeing in your yard uh, recently? Okay, we were talking about red-headed woodpeckers last week, and now this week somebody else has come to the forefront. I've been hearing my peleateds very often, and I knew that I had them. We you know, hear them around the place occasionally, but <clears throat> heard them several times, and then this morning I heard them again when I was walking around the yard, and I thought, okay, I have to mention that. Another wonderful uh, woodpecker, and it's... um. Our largest woodpecker, gosh, it can get to be about 20 inches long with a wingspan of 30 inches, and they're long-lived. They excavate a lot of holes in dead or dying trees, and uh, both the males and females will excavate cavities, and they'll do several. In fact, I, I didn't know that until I was reading it. Now that they, um, it's not uncommon for them to spend the night. You know, basically we say birds don't spend the night inside of a cavity unless they're nesting in there, but peleateds will spend the night occasionally in those cavities that they excavate. And then after the male has, you know, mated and they, uh, they're getting together, they will use the cavity that he's been staying in overnight to build a nest. So he's there to guard everything, and they're very territorial. You know, that's part of why you hear all that drumming. Some of it's to attract his mate, and they're monogamous. So once he gets his mate, he'll continue to drum because then he's keeping all the other males away and saying, <laughs> this is my territory, stay out. So anyway, there are, it's a, a really fun bird to... To see, particularly to see, because you just kind of takes your breath away sometimes is remembering how big they are, and they've got a, a, a strong, uh, cool flight pattern. But it's especially cool to hear them drumming. They're loud, you know, they can be the loudest thing in the woods when they start that, and um, it just sounds like it must be fun for them. We occasionally get people who will call or send us photographs of where they've been uh, excavating on these rotten trees, and the sign that is left gets mistaken for bear, black bears scratching on trees because the amount of material that falls to the ground, and we have to tell them, no, that's a peleated woodpecker, and they find that very hard to believe that they when, do that. Well, when you think about and that's one of the reasons to leave my, another one of my areas that I like to talk about, leaving those big old dying trees. If you can safely leave one yep. in your yard or in your neighborhood or on your property, it's a good idea to do it because think about they've got to have a big tree if they've got to excavate a space big enough for two 20-inch <laughs> birds to get in there. And the babies stay in the nest a long time. It's, it takes about a month for them before they'll fledge. Wow. Libby, so, uh, yeah. Troy, hey. uh, I had one in my front yard about three weeks ago, and he was doing his thing. He was, he was drumming. And uh, it would surprise me, you know, it's a subdivision, but we have about four or five acres of woodland behind us. So, but he was in the front yard on a on a dead tree, of course. Uh, one other thing, and I'll get off. I have pictures, and I'll send it to you. A box turtle um, uh, came up into the yard and in a flower bed, and I just happened to see her, and she was excavating to lay her eggs. Hmm. And uh, she dug probably for about twelve hours, 
and then laid her eggs. I didn't see her lay the eggs, but then she covered it up, and she stayed nearby for probably 24 hours. And I'm going to go on and put a wire mesh little cage over that because of predators. We have raccoons and other predators. So I think I'll try to protect the nest site. And it takes about 70 days, 70 to 80 days for those baby turtles to hatch. So it'll be interesting. Oh, yeah, and a lot of things do like to dig them up. Oh, and that brings me to another one, and you've probably been seeing these too, broad-headed skinks. This is their time to mate and lay eggs. And I've I've been I was watching a male that's outside of um, my little studio where I like to play back behind the house, and so um, a log where I'd been seeing one repeatedly, a big. And if you've seen a a, a nice big male broad-headed skink, you can't convince you know you can't mix him up with anything else. They're gosh, they can get. This one looks to be probably eight or nine inches long, but they can get even longer. And he's. Um, brownish green with a, a reddish Flame orange red big old head yeah. yeah and he's you know they're kind of aggressive looking but they're not <laughs> going to hurt you and uh they're really cool things to have around and they keep i mean he can eat a, a big roach in a mm-hmm. minute so you want to keep him and they even hunt in trees but um then i started seeing a female too right around the same log with him and uh, I read a little bit, and those males will hang around and protect the nest. They're, this is one of the lizards that the mother does stay with the eggs until they hatch. We can talk about that a little bit mm-hmm. with gators. But I thought of them, as Ricky, this morning as kind of a big version of, of what you deal with all the time. Yeah. So she's... I've, feel sure I don't want to disturb it, but she's under that log with her eggs, and he's just roaming around that log protecting because I'm sure there are a lot of things that would eat those little broad-headed skink eggs if they yeah. got the chance. All right. <clears throat> We've got something uh, fun today. A lot of times our listeners send pictures, but this time our very own Mike Duke, who is the head of the radio reading service, took it a step further, and he sent in some owl sounds that he gathered from around his house, and I think Java has those queued up and ready for us. That's the consensus of our expert. It was a barred owl. Great recording there from Mike. Got a good uh, sound of that. So that sounded like, um, and, and again, that's maybe letting other males know not to come around looking for females. Those typical kind of mm-hmm. reasons why birds are out there making yeah. sounds. Yeah. The owls mate pretty early, like even in February, February March. March. So, yeah, yeah, but they've got some babies. But they're, they are constantly patrolling their territories. I think all the species of owls are pretty territorial. They can make some very bizarre vocalizations <laughs> that uh, are the source of, of quite a few wives' tales, I believe, out there. I think you're right. You yeah. know, that's one of the things Mr. Turcott used to say when people said they heard panthers screaming in the woods. He said they were hearing owls or um, night herons. Yep, yep. Yeah, and he said they can... Do that scream like a woman in the woods <laughs> mm-hmm. is what we used to hear about. Yeah. So before we take our first break, go back to woodpeckers. Is there a difference in the cadence or whatever of their hammering that identifies them from others? 
Um, a little bit, yes. And I don't know how to explain it, but if you, you, you can listen online. There are several places where you can compare them. But that pileated has such a loud drumming sound yeah. that you just... I don't think you would confuse him with anything else once you hear the difference. And then that redhead is the ta 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 rat a tat tat kind of a thing. And then, gosh, a flicker. And speaking of wives' tales, I think some of that hammering of Pileades probably gets accused of being the Sasquatch. What do they call it? When you go out on those shows, they go out and they drum on the trees to try and drum up a response from Bigfoot. Oh, I haven't heard what, those. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Some people think they're bears, and some people think it's a Sasquatch. Yeah, so. I, I may digress just a little bit. <laughs> we, we had a flicker on our wooden house once when we were first building the house, and there's nothing any louder when you're inside your bedroom, and the flicker is on the outside beating on the wind. Wood so, knocking. Wood knocking yes. is the term that okay. those uh, Sasquatch people use. Oh. Uh, let me, we've got uh, something you'll be interested in online here. Joe is calling in from uh, Eads, Tennessee with, a, I think, a Firefly update. Joe, you're on there oh, with good. us. Go ahead. Oh, hello again. I called last Thursday and talked about these synchronized fireflies that we got to see. And uh, last week I took my wife out to the edge of the woods and showed her the fireflies. That was so interesting. But they're all gone now. So last night I went out on my back porch and just looked out on the tree line of the woods where our, my home is near and up at the top were all these fireflies at the top of the trees and uh, i remember in a show that y'all talked about earlier that there are certain kind of fireflies that that fly up the top of the trees and so these were just really going to town blinking last night so i went back into my house and i got my wife we came and i brought her out and we stood there and just looking at them and we were kind of quiet for a while and she said, oh, that is so beautiful. And then she said, you make life so much fun. <laughs> and I said, why do you say that? She said, well, you know so much, and you just make life interesting, and you show me such neat things. Well, I didn't tell her I learned that from your show. <laughs> I that for, for telling me that, uh, for that um, program you did a while back. And so that was really cool that I got to please my wife last night about that. And I'm looking forward to your show about the alligators, because uh, when I was a little boy, my brother and I lived near a Sims Bio, which is just outside of Houston, Texas, where we grew up. And we caught a small alligator one time that was on the bank of the bio uh, uh, water, and it was about two and a half feet long. And it was a cold, chilly day, so it was sluggish, and it couldn't get into the water fast enough. And we ran up and caught that little critter and took it home. And I don't know, like you said, if it was legal or not, but it was back in the 19, uh, late 50s, early 60s when I was a little boy. And uh, so we, we kept that little alligator for a long time and uh, finally let it go. But anyway, I'm looking forward to your show today. All Thank right. you. Joe, good to hear from you again. Great story, and glad that we could help out with uh, making you you look good at your wife's eyes. So keep listening, and who knows what other tidbits you'll get to hear. So thanks for your call. It is time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll begin talking about alligators uh, with our guest, the alligator program director, or coordinator, that is, Ricky Flint. Talk about alligator population, where they can be found, and when alligator hunting season is. Questions and comments from you are open at one 877 MPB ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Email animals 
at mpbonline.org. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. We're back on Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Today we're talking about uh, alligators with our guest. It's Ricky Flint from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. He's the Alligator Program Coordinator. So, Ricky, thanks for being on the show. I think we've had you on before, so always glad to have you on with us again. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, it's good to be back. I think it's been maybe a couple of years since I've been here, but... Uh kind of had a real, little annual regular stint going but yeah i'm a i'm a native of clinton mississippi and um i started my interest in wildlife back in the middle 60s early 70s by virtue of mutual of omaha's great oh, yeah. wild kingdom <laughs> and um from there um, when I was in the eighth grade, actually between my seventh and eighth grade year, Libby, you may remember this. I volunteered at the Museum of Natural Science under Roger, Roger yeah. Weil. <laughs> and, uh, I spent my summer there, uh, working in the lab and, um, uh, spent my first few months doing nothing but, uh, maintaining all the specimen jars that were there. And my goodness, at the amount of specimens that are on hand there, it was a full-time job. But, uh, you know, and so from there, um, when I got out of high school, that was just something I knew that I wanted to do. And I pursued that, a a degree at Mississippi State University in forestry and wildlife management. And um, my first job out of college, I worked for the USDA Wildlife Services branch uh, doing research on uh, fish-eating birds in the Mississippi Delta uh, that were depreba- depredating on the catfish industry there. And then in 1993, I started uh, a job with the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Parks as an area manager at the newly acquired Mahana Wildlife Management Area. That was in 1993. And uh, spent about 10 years in the WMA program and then took the opportunity to become the Alligator Program Coordinator in 2003. And that's where I've been ever since. And it's been uh, the most enjoyable uh, species that I have ever had any dealings with in my career now, 28 years. So tell us a little bit about the, the alligator program and the work that you do. So um, the alligator program actually got started in 1989, shortly after the alligator was taken off the endangered species list in 1987. And uh, that was necessary to be able to uh, have a means to handle the chronic nuisance alligator situations that occurred at that time, primarily in the Gulf Coast states, uh, Gulf Coast counties, uh, as well as here in the Jackson area, uh, in the area associated with the Pearl River and Ross Barnett Reservoir, where where there were abundant alligator populations as well as abundant human populations. And with that, um, there were um, needs to monitor the state's alligator population that's been going on since the mid-1970s and uh, then uh, 
when I came along in 2003, one of the first things I was charged with by our director was to uh, try and develop a alligator hunting season opportunity for the state of Mississippi. Um, that had been going on for decades, you know, in, in Louisiana and, and Florida, but um, most other states had not gotten into that yet. Um, and so I had the privilege of being at a number of regional meetings where other alligator program coordinators were um, associated and learned about what the other states were doing and basically adapted an idea uh, for Mississippi from what the state of Georgia was doing at the time in 1994, or excuse me, 2004. And, um, and that's kind of where Mississippi's alligator season birthed. We, we um, started out with a very simple, um, limited opportunity on the Pearl River uh, just above Ross Bournette Reservoir. There was about a 16-mile stretch of river. We started out with 50 permits. And uh, we have expanded those opportunities over the years till the point in 2013, we had our first statewide alligator hunting season. Uh, initially, there was only two zones. That was the Pearl River zone here near Jackson and the Pascagoula zone in Jackson County. And that's where we hunted alligators for the first six or seven years. And um, we're now going into our, I think this is our 19th or 18th uh, alligator hunting season this year. And uh, it is statewide. We have the uh, state divided into seven hunting zones. Uh, people can put in an application electronically, which we just completed that process. Uh, the first week of June, from June 1st to the 8th, we take applications electronically through our website. Then those, we basically complete seven uh, random drawings uh, in those seven zones and issue uh, permits to winners. They uh, receive an email notification, and they go online immediately, and they have 48 hours to purchase their permit. And at the end of that 48 hours, any leftover permits, we do a second drawing for. And that's where we are in the process right now. We're about to have – we've completed our first drawing. We're going to have our second drawing on June 22nd, and then that will complete the permitting process. We have about 960 permits available statewide. So <clears throat> is that a challenge for a hunter, uh, alligator hunting? Uh, absolutely. Um, if it's your first time to get involved, it's, it is uh, quite a bit of a learning curve. Um, you know, a lot of people think that alligator hunting would be extremely dangerous uh, from the standpoint <clears throat> excuse me, of the quarry that you're uh, after the alligator. And a lot of people think alligators are extremely dangerous, and when they have great potential to be dangerous, they really are not. Um, but the most dangerous aspect of alligator hunting really is uh, being out on these waterways in remote areas uh, at night, particularly, uh, in, uh, with a lot of underwater obstructions and things like that, um, with, you know, a large, usually a three or four people in the boat and all the gear that it takes, it, it becomes quite dangerous. But uh, so far, it's been a very safe sport for the state of Mississippi. Yeah, I can imagine then in addition to hunting knowledge, you need to, as you're sort of referencing there, be good with uh, on the water and boats and, 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 and that kind of thing. So, right. <clears throat> um, let's uh, take a couple of phone calls. We're going to be visiting with Ricky throughout the hour, but uh, let's go to the phones first uh, and say good morning to Harry in Water Valley. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hey. I, I uh, you know, North Mississippi got hit by a monsoon last week. Uh, 
with torrential rain, almost 15 inches here in Water Valley, I had a old dead pine tree that had become a home for woodpeckers. Um, and during the course of the storm, it knocked about the top 10 feet of the tree off across my driveway. When I went out to clear the path so I could get in and out, I found 11 eggs in the trunk and uh, other areas of it. They were about medium-sized chicken egg size, and uh, which I assumed they were woodpecker eggs because there were so many different woodpecker holes and nests there. So I um, I left the eggs out, and as I found them around uh, the next day, none of the eggs that were that I found were cracked. They were still whole. Well, the next day when I went out, nine of them were missing totally with no evidence of, of egg debris or anything, and the other two were still whole. And then later that day I checked, and they looked like they'd been pecked by a blue jay or something. But uh, I was surprised at how big the eggs were. That very possibly could be wood ducks. Uh, even though it's a pine tree, uh, they no, are no, cavity no. masters, and for it to be as many as 11 eggs in one nest... I, I doubt there was one nest. I, I assumed that there were there were several nests. The tree was okay. thirty feet tall, and I mean, and there were there were probably ten different woodpecker hole entrances in the tree. Uh, I'm not trying to argue with you, but I have yeah. wood ducks in my place too. Uh, but they, I have wood duck houses, and uh, but these were obviously. I mean, they, the tree had been there for three years. It was old. I mean, it had been in its state for three years. And there were woodpeckers all over the place. So, but uh, I was amazed. The eggs looked to be. I looked on the internet, which is not always a good source of things, and it said that a, a woodpecker's eggs could be one to three inches, uh, and that they were three to five in a clutch. I think is the term that used. But the two parts were one that the eggs were that big and there were that many, and two that they just disappeared overnight and what what took them, which. I figured it's either a rat snake or a yeah. raccoon or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I was just thinking a snake because they don't leave any evidence right. when they take it. If it's a blue jay or a crow, you're going to see the cracked eggshell. Very few well, things that, can pick one up and take it away with it except yeah, a snake. Even, yeah. even raccoons or possums that scavenge on them, they're going to leave the eggshell or the membranes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. The, the second day after this, there was... Whatever had come to get the last two had poked a hole in it and taken everything out of it. So. Yeah, so that was probably bird. Crows yeah. or blue jays, yeah. yeah. All right, Harry, thanks for the call. Interesting story there. Time for another break. Uh, when we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest, Ricky Flint, the Alligator Program Coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Our friend Sue from Beaumont's on the line. We'll get to her call as well. And a chance for you to call in at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. 
This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the day is Ricky Flint from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. To join our conversation, give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or email animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you uh, that if you miss part of the day's show, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Either way, you get to listen to MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. Sue from Beaumont is on the line. Good morning, Sue. Good to hear from you. Thank you. <clears throat> I'd like to ask, uh, just alligators have become so prolific. Why is it their open season on alligators and let people kill as many as they can because they've become a pest in uh, infested lakes? And uh, I saw a video on Facebook where uh, an alligator climbed a fence. He climbed over this, like, this four or five foot tall fence and plopped himself down into a pasture. I wonder, do they, do they ever go after livestock or anything like that? Well, let's let's start off with the first question. Um, you know, all of our wildlife are important, and unless we are talking about uh, introduced species, non-natives, uh, or something that has actually reached a nuisance status, uh, we we are obligated to protect those species uh, and manage those and monitor them. Uh, and a lot of that is done through hunting seasons with many of our game species. Alligators um, have reached the point uh, that those populations certainly can withstand some limited take, uh, um, and that's where we got started in 2005. Um, and I, I'll bring up a, a conversation I had with a very young individual a number of years ago. He was about 15 years old. He was not from Mississippi, and he was interested in, in what I did for a living, and um, I was telling him, kind of like we are here today, what do you do? How do you, how do you manage alligators? And one of the points he brought up that really brought things home to me, he said, so alligators are so long-lived. They've been around for reportedly millions of years, and they did just fine without humans. Why do, they, well, why do you have a job managing alligators when they did so well for so long? Well... <laughs> Uh, good point, but uh, the human aspect has not been as much a part of the history of alligators until the most recent history. And uh, we did a very good job of putting them in danger back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s to the point they were put on the endangered species list in 67. Now, they've done a very good job of rebounding. We've worked very hard to uh, rebound those populations across the state. So we, we know that uh, we're... They can present uh, nuisance situations, and, and we have a program that can handle that. And um, I guess I would say just to that question, you know, if we allowed people to just kill any animal just because they don't like them or don't want to have them around, we would we would have some problems with managing many of our wildlife species and making sure that they're here for many generations to come. Um, 
But yes, we do have a program where if an alligator has become a nuisance, you can contact us and we'll we'll make sure uh, that those nuisance animals are removed if they are. And yes, they do occasionally uh, take livestock. They occasionally take pets. Uh, we've never had a documented case of an alligator attack in the state of Mississippi, although I'm told that there is some record uh, back in the mid-1800s down on the Gulf Coast of a person that was actually attacked uh, then, but uh, I haven't seen that officially. Um, which brings up a, a good point, Libby, you, you mentioned a while ago. We need to talk about feeding alligators. Feeding alligators is a very dangerous activity. Uh, all the states that have native alligator populations have laws on the books that make it illegal to feed alligators for obvious reasons. Once people start to feed alligators, those alligators begin to associate a food source with human activity. And because of the potential problems and danger that come with alligators being apex predators uh, and their ability to take someone as large as, as a human, uh, as mistaken prey, if you have people that are uh, visiting an area, whether it's a lake, a river, a boat ramp, a marina, whatever the case may be, where someone has been feeding alligators and they are not aware that the alligators are there, the alligator can mistake that human activity as someone who's going to be providing a handout. And if you don't provide that handout, it can provide a very dangerous situation. And for that reason, it's illegal in the state of Mississippi. And we do have to deal with this every year in different parts of the state. All right, Sue, a good question. Th glad to hear from you again this morning. Um, am I correct in that the limits on the the alligator hunting season are not set in stone? It's something the research that you do throughout the year in terms of population helps you decide the limits for each season's hunt. Yeah, we we um, we've basically set a limit that has been um, in place now for about twelve of those 15, uh, eighteen years that we've been doing this, and that is that each permit holder is allowed to take two alligators. Uh, they have to be at least four feet long, but only one of those can exceed seven feet. And the data has shown without, uh, without doubt that what we are doing is we're distributing that harvest of the alligator population, about 50% juveniles, non-breeding age, and about 50% breeding age alligators. Uh, hunters and fishermen have this great propensity to try and go after the trophy, you know, <laughs> and we learned early on that even if you allow them to take two alligators and they can only catch one big one, that's the only one they'll ever take. And we are interested in the people are removing some alligators from the population, but we don't want to put so much pressure on those larger breeding alligators to the point that we are hunting them to dangerous levels either. And so that's something that we follow closely, and, and it has worked out great. Our hunting success uh, among hunters is very stable. At about 78 to 80 percent of our hunters are successful uh, in harvesting an alligator, and even our um, the average length of alligators uh, taken every year for those under 7 feet and those over 7 feet is very stable. It's only fluctuating an inch or two every year across now 18 years. And so that type of information tells me that uh, we're not being detrimental to the population. 
and uh, we're doing something very uh, good for outdoor recreation, and it's and it's helping the uh, alligator population as well. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio today, visiting with Ricky Flint, the alligator program coordinator at the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Dr. Major here, ready for some pet questions. And we've got some open phone lines, so if you want to call in today and join the show, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. So, Ricky, Dr. Major told us his story, and I think he said his alligator got to be about three and a half feet, and then I think we've all heard and seen pictures of kind of the mammoth ones that are sometimes caught. What about uh, size for alligators? What's kind of the common, the average? Uh... Yeah, so uh, a lot of people have the belief that those large, exceptional uh, alligators are the females, and it's quite the opposite. Females... Uh, do not grow uh, near to the capacity that the males do. In fact, once they reach about six or seven feet in length, their growth rates are greatly decreased. Um, We know that there are some female alligators in captivity that are uh, eight or eight and a half feet long, and they've been in captivity as much as 35 to 50 years. And um, we, we have records of a number of alligators, uh, female alligators that exceed nine feet. Um, there's only a few records in the United States of female alligators exceeding 10 feet. Uh, I have had the privilege of capturing one female here on the Pearl River in the year 2009 that measured 10 feet, two inches. Uh, she was tagged and released, and uh, I have not seen her or heard of her since. But that female uh, ties the world record for the largest female on record, which uh, there was a 10-foot, 2-inch alligator in the state of Florida in 1984 uh, that was discovered through a similar research project. Uh, we've had a couple um, in Mississippi during the alligator hunting seasons that have uh, reached the 10-foot level, and that's where our alligator hunting record exists right now. But the males, commonly 12 feet long, uh, even uh, a few 13-footers every year are found. The largest we have officially recorded uh, is just a little bit over 14 feet and about an inch, uh, three-quarters of an inch, I believe. Uh, We've got unofficial records of alligators over 14 feet, but we've never actually officially recorded over much over 14 feet and an inch. Remind me that one that... that, that and that's a long story too. The one that you got for us at the museum that's hanging that's so big. He was not so long as he was so broad. Wasn't yes. that the deal? He was just incredibly heavy. That was a alligator that came from the Eagle Lake vicinity. Um and which is a interesting topic in itself. The alligators that exist uh in the Mississippi Delta and adjacent to the Mississippi River are part of an ecosystem that simply just produces larger plants, larger fish, larger mammals because of the uh, richness of the soils that exist there. Um, Those um, nutrients are magnified in the food chain and alligators are at the top of the food chain. And so we see that alligators in those in that vicinity are more massive uh, per per foot of length compared to other alligators in the state. And um, I'm I'm trying to remember the exact situation that existed with that alligator. I, I, 
I remember us catching it because it was a problem, and uh, maybe it, it had we, – we, we didn't need to relocate it. It was going to have to be euthanized, and I remembered that you were at the time looking for a, a nice specimen to put in the museum, and so that became a good – uh, one to collect for yeah. that. I got an early morning call from Ricky, and he said, I would not call you. It was like, I would think, 6 o'clock or something. And he yeah. said, I wouldn't ordinarily call you this early, but <laughs> can I get this alligator to you? Mm-hmm. You, said, you said you hated, you said, I don't want to put this alligator down. Right. I feel bad about killing something that's lived this long, but I would feel better if you can take it at the museum. Yeah, and it worked out and made a, an extremely nice uh, exhibit there along with the uh, alligator guard that's on exhibit as well. Yeah, those are two monster animals. This is Creature Comforts, time for the last break of the hour. We've been visiting throughout the hour with our guest today, Ricky Flint from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, where he is the Alligator Program Coordinator. Still time to work in a phone call with your question or comment at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 7464, email animals at mpbonline.org. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the hour is Ricky Flint from the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, where he is the Alligator Program Coordinator. Uh, let's uh, hop right back on the phone lines. First, we'll go to Indianola. Lori is called in today. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Yes. Um, because um, the um, most dangerous part of uh, alligator hunting is at night and on uh, waters, uh, is there um, safety training available for those who get a permit, or is it required? Yes, ma'am. We do have an alligator training course. In fact, in the early years, uh, actually for about the first 10 or 12 years, it was absolutely mandatory of everyone that got a permit. They had to attend uh, our alligator hunting training course, which is about four hours long. And... um, we have had nearly 6,000 people have come through that training course over those years. Um, as time went on, uh, we had such a, a big, broad base of those people who had been through the class that were continuing to be alligator hunters. Uh, we decided to make it a voluntary class. And uh, then last year came along, along with covid and um, that presented us some problems. Even though we were still going to have the alligator hunting season going on, we did not need to uh, have that mandatory in-person training course. And it forced my hand to actually produce an online hunting uh, training course that was in my goals, the things to do, just had not done it yet. But we got that done last year. There is a series of uh, 11 hunt, uh, videos that are on the Alligator Program page that people can go to anytime and watch at your leisure. Uh, it covers everything from the basic information, basic biology of alligators, all the way through the capture techniques, the allowed equipment, 
uh, how to process your alligator um, and how to all that that sort of stuff. And, and it even has a, a section in there about boating safety as well. So, yes, you can go to our website, mdwfp.com slash alligator. And you'll scroll down, you'll get to the section about the alligator hunting training course, and anybody can watch it. Well, I'm not going to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) But I have to say that um, I hope that people will, you know, if they're going. It just seems like to me to be, uh, I hate it, it's not mandatory, but I can imagine there are some foolish people out there. Well, it, it has been very successful over the years. Uh, the word has gotten out uh, among uh, social media that if you and there, there is a huge social media following about alligator hunting in Mississippi. And uh, the word is out that if you are a first time participant in alligator hunting, that you absolutely need to go and, and watch that course. And, and uh, it, it definitely helps people uh, get over that learning curve. All right, Laurie, thanks for the call. Just a quick note, and uh, Ricky, you know, we have a bunch of folks from MDWP on the show, and I'm really impressed at how much that you all have put on your website, things like you mentioned the alligator course, and I think you can also get your hunting license online. So right. uh, from talking with, with the folks that work there, I think that the MDWFP.com, lots of valuable information about the great outdoors here in Mississippi. Great resource of information uh, across so many venues, Um uh, hunting and fishing, boating, um, the museum, and all the many educational aspects that are uh, provided there, Um, youth um, and the youth programs, the archery and schools program, which has become so popular in Mississippi. Uh, There's, yeah, I I can't even begin to name it all, but um, I know y'all had Jerry Brown here. There's uh, I always I push a lot of our alligator hunters to the fisheries page because there's a interactive map there where you can look at all of the public boat ramp access points in the state of Mississippi as well as bait shops <laughs> and uh, people call us all the time you know I'm trying to find bait in my community where's the closest one and you can go to that website and they're on there it's great. Let's get one final phone call in, and it goes to Jim in Hattiesburg. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I I just wanted to ask a quick question. I was wondering if you could go a little bit into the science behind maintaining a healthy wild population and determining what the appropriate number of licenses is to give out year to year. Okay. Good question. Um, And it's it's a common question, and I'm glad to answer it. The you may be surprised to know that the number of permits that we allocate really have more to do with um, providing a safe environment on those waterways for the density of hunters that are out there. Um, There's only so much public waterways in the state of Mississippi, and only a certain amount of that has public access uh, that they can use from public boat ramps. And because of that, you can wind up with a a higher density of hunters in one location compared to others. And so um, as we have expanded the alligator hunting season, uh, myself and other officers being out on the waterways, making our observations about the number of hunting parties out there at one time, uh, we have expanded to this point. And I really 
feel very good about the numbers that we have out there right now. We have adjusted it uh, some in some of the zones. We've actually reduced the number of um, permits in a couple of zones over the last few years because of this very factor. Uh, the number of people out on the waterways at one time, trying to make sure it's safe and trying to make sure that uh, they are not uh, impacting each other negatively as far as the quality of the hunt. All right, uh, Jim, thanks for your call. Uh, we just got about a minute left. Um, Ricky, do you know of any online resources if someone wanted to learn more about alligators in addition to mdwfp.com? Any other sources that you like to go to or would point folks to? Well, as most people know, if you go to Googling things, you will find a tremendous amount of resources. But on our alligator program page, we do have links to some other uh, popular sites, uh, other states, and other uh, informational pages that are very helpful um the amount of information that's out there about alligators is is amazing uh the state of louisiana uh for so many decades now has been doing tremendous amounts of alligator research down at rockefeller refuge and they share much of that information there and that's probably one of the best resources for for good scientific information would be the louisiana department of wildlife and fisheries uh, and the Alligator Advisory Council. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded, provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. For Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Ricky Flint, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next at... 10, it's autocorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.